Dear white people, someone wrote on Twitter yesterday, your black friends and colleagues are exhausted. In 2018, The Lancet published the results of a study that showed that black Americans are nearly three times more likely to be killed by police than their white counterparts, with even larger disparities among those who were unarmed. They noted that police killings of unarmed black Americans didn't just cause trauma for the family of the victims, but were associated with worse mental health among other black Americans in the United States general population. The killing of George Floyd is only the latest in a string of modern-day horrific extrajudicial killings and lynchings at the hands of police or vigilantes. Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott, Sandra Bland, Botham Jean, Atatiana Jefferson, Brianna Taylor are just a few of the most highly publicized cases. I'm Steve Allred, and this is Do Justice. Merriam-Webster defines a lynching as putting to death by mob action without legal approval or permission. And lynchings are simply part and parcel of black history in America, a nation where, by the way, we claim that all people are created equal and have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Perhaps you've seen the video of George Floyd pleading for his life as he lays restrained in handcuffs on the street, unable to harm the police. Regardless of what George Floyd might have done prior to this point, nothing justified his being killed by the police while he lies there restrained by handcuffs. An officer's knee is on his neck as he repeatedly says, I can't breathe. Bystanders tell the officer that he's killing Mr. Floyd. The police officer, with his hands nonchalantly stuck in his pockets, kneels on George Floyd's neck until he dies and stays there even after another officer announces that he can't find a pulse. I hope you're sickened and disgusted and ready to make a difference. But if you've been listening and watching for any length of time, you know that this is really nothing new. In fact, many Americans alive today were around in 1955 when a 14-year-old boy named Emmett Till was lynched by some white men in Mississippi. What was the crime of this black teenager? Being accused of offending a white woman who worked in her family's grocery store. Emmett Till was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. In 1955, he decided to visit some relatives in Mississippi and spend the summer there. One day, he went to the small grocery store in town, and there he spoke to Carolyn Bryant, a 21-year-old white woman who worked there. What happened next is in dispute, but Bryant later said that Till whistled at her and made advances. Till's mother would later, by the way, note that Till had problems speaking and that she had taught him to whistle before he spoke in order to assist him with his speech impediment. Several nights later, Bryant's husband, Roy, and his half-brother, J.W. Millam, took their guns and went to the house where Emmett Till was staying and abducted the 14-year-old boy. As told by History.com, his assailants then made Emmett carry a 75-pound cotton gin fan to the bank of the Tallahatchie River and ordered him to take off his clothes. The two men then beat him nearly to death, gouged out his eye, shot him in the head, and then threw his body tied to the cotton gin fan with barbed wire into the river. Three days later, Till's body was discovered and retrieved from the river. Emmett's mother insisted on having a public open casket funeral for little Emmett so that Americans could see how her son had been brutalized. Till's horrific murder and the subsequent publicity spotlighted the plight of black Americans in the American South. But in September 1955, an all-white jury found Bryant and Millam not guilty of Till's kidnapping and murder. A few years later, and protected by the double jeopardy rule, the men publicly admitted that they had killed Emmett Till. It wasn't until a few years ago, in 2017, that Tim Tyson, in his book, The Blood of Emmett Till, wrote how Carolyn Bryant, in her old age, had recanted her testimony, admitting that Till had never touched, threatened, or harassed her. Nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him, she said. If you find Emmett Till's story from long ago hard to listen to, 
or if you could barely stomach to watch the video from last week showing George Floyd's slow death by asphyxiation from a police officer's knee on his neck. Keep in mind that these stories are just two of myriads of stories. The terrorization of black Americans stretching back for centuries. Violence and police brutality enabled and encouraged by a culture of white supremacy are the reality that black Americans have experienced for essentially all of American history to one degree or another. Now, this may be a difficult conversation for you to listen in on, but you need to listen, especially if you're not a black American. In other words, if you're a white American, this conversation is for you. A couple days ago, I contacted four of my friends from across the country and asked if they would be willing to share their experiences as black Americans. They graciously agreed, and in the conversation that follows, they are open and vulnerable about their experiences and perspectives. And where do we go from here? My guests begin to answer that question in this first part of our conversation, but you'll want to listen to part two in the next episode to hear some great ideas. I want to just thank each of you for being here today, and uh, let's just start out with uh, introducing ourselves. And uh, um, let's see, uh, Cedric. I want to start with you, actually. Um, Cedric Pritchett is um, a friend of mine from way back, long time ago. We won't say from where, uh, Cedric, but uh, tell tell <laughs> uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Certainly, certainly, Steve. It's great to be a part of this conversation. Thank you for the invitation. Um, Steve and I met each other in our adolescent years. We'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> so I am a, um, a African-American man, um, married uh, for almost 20 years, two wonderful daughters and a wonderful spouse. We reside here in uh, central Florida. Uh, I should add that my wife is also African-American with a little bit of Caribbean descent. Um, we live here in, in Orlando and are enjoying what Florida has to offer. Um, by way of profession, I am a uh, surgeon, a pediatric otolaryngologist, and have been in healthcare for most of my adult life in many capacities, ranging from a nurse aide early on, physician assistant, uh, physician, uh, and so on. I've a, I'm passionate about uh, public health, uh, population health. Spent some time in looking at that in graduate school as well. Um, my background for growing up is uh, my, my parents were both from the states here. Uh, we moved around a bit, and I had the benefit of, of living in communities that were fairly diverse over my childhood. Uh, some were predominantly uh, African-American, black, um, uh, some were predominantly white, and then uh, we also spent quite a bit of time out in uh, Southwest uh, with the Native American population. And uh, I'm excited to be a part of this discussion to see to see how um, you know Jesus can be a part of of how we look at dealing with some uh, some challenging realities that we're facing. Mm, mm, it's good to have you here, Cedric. Um, Secondly, I want to ask uh, Pastor Trevor Barnes to uh, introduce himself. Uh, Pastor Barnes is a friend of mine from seminary days at Andrews University, a good friend, and we've also pastored together in the same uh, area of the country, although he recently left us. But uh, uh, Trevor, tell us about yourself and, and uh, introduce yourself to, to the, the audience here. All right. Well, uh, Steve, thank you for... Uh, allowing me to be a part of this conversation. Um, my name is uh, Trevor Barnes. I happen to be a pastor in St. Louis, Missouri. I uh, just got here um, last August, uh, so maybe about 10 months uh, now that uh, I have been uh, in Missouri, um, uh, recovering California. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> and, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh i am uh i'm a avid cyclist i love cycling uh so what i do for fun um and just to get some uh you know time to get away i'm a father of two uh husband um and i um actually have uh, origins that uh go to the caribbean 
I was actually born in Mandeville, Jamaica, um, lived there for six years, and then came to the United States and grew up in Oakland, California, been all over since then, um, uh, you know, for school, Alabama, Michigan, Georgia, different, different states. So I've, I've, I've been um, all over uh, this country. And again, it's just grateful to be here as a part of this conversation. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you here as well, Trevor. And and uh, Trevor has um, some great discussions that he is facilitating on uh, the topic that we'll be talking about today as well. And I had the privilege of being a part of one of those yesterday afternoon. Um, and what, what do you call, is it uh, Critical Conversations? Is that what the name of your uh, uh, podcast yeah. is? Crucial Conversations. Crucial, um, yes. I don't know if. Yeah, crucial conversations. I don't know if it's ultimately going to be a podcast, but you know, we've just done two um, uh, shows, mm-hmm. put that way, um, on on uh, the recent death of um, um, you know uh, uh, um, Mr. Floyd and then Ahmad Aubrey. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, these these two deaths have really hit um, me and I believe um, our country hard and the african-american community um really hard and so um we just wanted to talk about it Uh, there's a lot of pain um surrounding it and so yeah crucial conversations might end up you know being something that really does take off but um you know uh, there's been a lot of great response to it but we just you know responding to the the needs in our in our community neat and last but definitely not least um are my friends don and chongo young husband and wife um I've known Chongo for uh, many years back when I was in seminary at Andrews University as well, and, and Chongo was in the uh, School of Education, I think, doing uh, your uh, master's degree, your doctorate um, there, and later I got to meet her wonderful husband, Don, and I'm really happy to have both of you here today. Would you just both introduce yourselves as well? Hello, my name is Don Young. Uh, very part, part, very uh, happy to be a part of this conversation. Um, by way of introduction, I was uh, born in Jamaica. Um, but I did leave when I was very young, um, lived in, uh, Canada for four years, but the rest of the time has been living in the United States. Uh, I grew up in New York city, uh, stayed there until I went away to college, went to Andrews university and much to the chagrin of my mother decided to stay in Michigan once I got a job. <laughs> um, I've been doing information technology. <laughs> she tells me about that every day. Um, I decided to uh, go into information technology. I've had a, a very uh, fulfilling career in that. Um, in uh, 2009, I made the best decision of my life by marrying um, the former um, Chandu Mundende. Um, and we have two children, a, a six-year-old girl and a four-year-old boy. Um, as far as, uh, like say, a, a religious background, uh, my father uh, was a Seventh-day Adventist minister. Um, I grew up in that church as well. Um, and so Christianity has been a part of my life. Uh, for my entire life. Um, I've lived in a lot of different environments as far as uh, racial mix, uh, very heavily uh, mixed, uh, almost exclusively black uh, when I was in New York, um, as well as predominantly white in some areas as well. So, you know, uh, a very good mix. Um, so that's kind of a, a rough background on myself, and I'll turn it over to Chongo. Thank you. Um Yes, thank you so much for inviting um, me to this conversation. I um, am a school psychologist. I um, grew up all over. I was born in South Zambia, and then um, my dad um, is an educator and just moved around a little bit for education, so went to Canada for a little bit um, and then um, came to the United States for a little bit. Um, He stayed here while getting his Ph.D., and my mom and my brother and my sister went back to Zambia for a little bit. Uh, for about six years, came back. I've been here um, about thirty uh, something years. I can't calculate. I got thirty nine years, um, and so uh, came back here. And I've been living in the United States, uh, mostly fifth grade to twelfth grade. I was um, in Oklahoma. That's uh, where my parents decided to settle. Um, and uh, my environment was was a little bit mixed, but um, I'm mostly. Uh, Caucasian, um, and then just uh, and and just um, 
just a little bit of my background. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm usually like the uh, the, like, uh, the my, minority in my uh, uh, in my group. It seems. Mm. Thank you, Chongo. Glad to have you and Don here today. And um, I want to start out with a, a very broad question, or one that is is you know it, it asks you to be vulnerable. Um, I realize that with the recent news. Um, the, the shooting of um, Ahmad Arbery in Georgia um, just a short time ago, uh, Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, uh, George Floyd in Minnesota here just, you know, within the past week. Um, these are, you know, terrible, horrific, traumatic events. And especially so, I think, for the African-American community, the black community here, um, Trevor, let's let's let me just start with you and ask you this question: What emotions are you experiencing right now in the wake of these recent events? Um, man, I I I think that there's on my end um, just frustration. Um, it, it is troubling to me when I saw the video of Mr. Floyd uh, in particular. And you see a man who is just crying out for his life. Mm, mm. Uh, when, when a grown man gets to a point where he is calling for his deceased mother um, for help mm. because he's experiencing so much pain and there are police officers there who can, uh, you know, stop his suffering. Uh, yet can't, they are actually contributing to his suffering and, um, you know, causing the pain and citing the violence. It really just causes frustration for me. Um, it, 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 it hurts me deeply. And, um, you know, uh, I, I also, uh, on, on my end, the, the other part that just hurts me deeply is um, just to know that um, if there was no videotape, based on the police report, this would have just been, you know, just another black uh, man you know, killed, another black person killed, just another black person killed. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, uh, the, the 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 frustrating thing is like, hey, this has been happening for years. This is what we're saying uh, has been happening, and um, you know, it's only till the most violent, most gruesome videotape imaginable can come out that now it seems like, uh, you know, there are, uh, there's at least it seems to be that way. Overwhelming support of saying there must be justice in all parts of America, but this is the the burden, um, that, that the African American community has had to suffer through and carry through for all of these years. And I, I think that that's, that's really frustrating. You know, you know, why should it have to come to a person having to die in such a gruesome way mm. for there to be a legitimate, for the story to become legitimate? Mm-hmm. Um, that, 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 that's the frustrating uh, thing on, on, on my end. Anybody else? What emotions are you experiencing right now in the wake of, of these terrible events? I couldn't events? watch it. I I see. I, I could not watch. I started to watch the video, um, and I think I got like two minutes in, and I and I saw how how much longer I would have to watch it, and I could not watch that video. Mm-hmm. I felt it was like I was angry. I was heartbroken. I was so sad. Um, I have a four year old sweet sweet um, son, and I just could. I was picturing him and I just could not finish watching that. I could not. Mm. And I could not believe that this was, I mean, I've never, I never thought in my life that I would witness a murder like, mm. like right there in front of my eyes. Like I never thought I, I would, yeah, mm. I could not watch it. Yeah, Steve. So, <clears throat> um, Chonga, like you, I, uh, Actually, I haven't even haven't even tried. I just decided that at this point in time, I'm, I'm not going to watch it. Uh, the uh, verbal reports, the readings, and such are sufficient for me to understand that this was 
this was about as, this was a lynching. I mm-hmm. mean, mm-hmm. this was somebody who was asphyxiated in a very public, humiliating, degrading way, which is no different than what has happened in our, in our past. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's exactly what this is. Um, <clears throat> emotions. Yes. I'm upset. Um, frustrated. I'm upset really that, uh, there's this disproportionate and, and unjustifiable loss of life for my brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, it, it, it has been going on too long and, and, um, needs to stop. But I'm also upset that there is this lack of accountability, mm-hmm. this, this lack of consequence proportional to the crime that's, that's happened. There's this air of invincibility of untouchableness that is not equally distributed in our society. And that's particularly bothersome. Um, I'm frustrated that the attempts that have been made to have these discussions and bring this to attention have been repeatedly rebuffed. You know, individuals from celebrities to athletes have been brushed off or, or, or characterized as, as being problematic, mm-hmm. uh, to the country and the flag. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that these situations may not change. Um, and that the reactions to the lack of action will compound and, and complicate these situations. You know, I, as a, as a, as a physician, I, I'm supposed to be looking for the cause of a problem and addressing the cause. Treating the symptoms is important, but if the symptoms, um, if the cause is not determined and removed, the symptoms won't go away. If you've broken your arm, we need to set your arm. I can give you a pain medicine, but that's not going to fix your broken bone. If you're having chest pain because of a heart attack, you need oxygen and blood, right? So I'm concerned that we won't actually get to the cause of what's going on. And yet at the same time, while I have those more dark feelings, I also have some hope and gratitude and some resolution. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful, Stephen, that as you or as, as uh, Trevor brought out, the egregiousness of what we've seen has seared our country to a point that there is no turning back. I mean, from Botham Jean, you know, the accountant in his own home, Mm -hmm. Sean, uh, Tatiana Jefferson, great woman. Um, and, uh, spending time with her nephew shot in her own home. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So Aubrey, Brianna, George, you know, um, I I'm hopeful that this conversation has reached a boiling point where, well, we, won't be able to brush this under. The whole world is looking at us. Turkey, Iran, places that we say, oh, these these countries are certainly inferior to the United States. Well, when it comes to human rights issues, but look at this. Um, I'm grateful that I've lived 42 years to have a, uh, a wife and two girls, to be a husband and a father, um, a researcher. I haven't been exempt from bias and racism, but I don't have some of the scars my brethren and sisters have in their journey. Uh, And that's not necessarily their fault or because I'm better, but I'm certainly thankful. Um, And I'm resolved to to speak up and speak out, to do what's right and support the cause of Christ and that cause that he would champion. Don, I want to address this question to you. Um, one commentator said that, you know, the death of Mr. George Floyd was the last straw for um, black Americans, I think is how they put it. Would you agree with that? And and why do you think that is, if that's true? Well, I mean, it, this has elicited a reaction nationwide, which we haven't seen for many of the other incidents recent incidents that were happening. So in a sense, I would agree that this is the the last straw. There was something visceral about um, the way that George Floyd was killed. Um, when I look at the police officer who was kneeling on him, um, I've done martial arts for, for many, many years. And so for me, I understand very well what he did was absolutely unnecessary. It was unnecessary. Mm. He did it to inflict pain 
and harm and to dehumanize George Floyd. Mm. He continued to do it even when he was saying, I can't breathe. Now, it, we've already had a, a movement several years ago, the I can't breathe movement. And yet he still did it on film with his hands stuck in his pockets like he's at the beach, mm. not caring like this is an animal underneath him. Wow. And just that callousness of what he did, even continuing to kneel after um, George Floyd became unresponsive, there's just, that hurts. That hurts to see. And like what Changa was saying, you know, my son is going to grow up in one day, maybe be in a, in a similar position. It doesn't matter what he did up to that point. He was under control. The police once you're under control, are supposed to treat you humanely. We've seen many instances where they do, but they didn't in this case. Uh, his three buddies didn't do it in this case. It's, yeah. it's just kind of hard to fathom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with uh, Don. Um, you know, I think what, this is definitely, I agree with the commentator. This, this, this is the tipping point. I, 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 I've seen, and, and, and here's why I say that. I, I, I know people who promote their entire lives, nonviolence and peace, who have been pushed to the precipice because of this. Like mm-hmm. I, people that I love that have never uh, advocated, you know, an eye for an eye. This video has pushed them to the point where they're like, we do not believe that change will happen in this country. We have to do something else. We have to take another route. Mm. Um, That's what I'm sensing, um, you know, in my conversations and in what I'm seeing on social media. Um, And to some extent, I feel that that's what's happening um, uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have when you have an individual um, who is restrained and uh, is in a vulnerable position, um, and the, the the typical the, the the conversation was, well, he must have done something to uh, you know be in that position uh, on the ground, and then when you see the rest of the video, and it looks like he's compliant the entire time. Mm-hmm. And then to then be put on the ground and murdered, you know, mm-hmm. in front of everyone like that. Uh, and, and you have the audience, uh, the crowd, you know, who is in the, involved in the, the, the situation, begging for his life, pleading with the officers to, 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 to treat this man as a human being, saying, look at his eyes. He's about to pass out and... Food is coming out of his mouth. You, you, you hear the, 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 the conversation of the people and that conversation with the callousness of the police and the other officers defending the actions uh, of the uh, police officers who are uh, holding him down and slowly taking his, away his life. If, if this does not cause a tipping point, I'll tell you, I don't know what will. Mm. Like just this week, just the, so like the the news, you know what you heard about the man, of, the pastor in Florida, you know, and and what he told the, you know, when people found out what he was doing, what he said is like two black men, you know, and he falsely said it was two black men that um, kidnapped him and took him to the motel room when it was something else, and then Amy Cooper, you know, she knew what she was doing when she made that phone call to the police, you know, to the police, mm-hmm. they would come. They wouldn't even like, you know, the first thing they would do is they would look at the um, um, uh, Mr. Cooper and then they would, uh, to him, they would look and she was hoping that they would automatically think that he was in the wrong. And but by the time everything was cleared up, uh, she would be long gone. And you think about like, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People have been stuck at home for weeks, for months now. And um, they've been seeing the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And a lot of people that look like us are in the have-nots. And so, you know, it's just, it, it, it was a tipping point where to where, like, okay, I've, you know, suffering, 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 and then this. And I think people are just, 
set, it was it just sent it overboard. It just couldn't couldn't stand it. Cedric, no, I, I I could not agree more that the body of work that has occurred very rapidly over this last year, where those who we are seeing uh, die at the hands of their perpetrators are, and this is going to sound really insensitive, but I think the uh, 17-year-old who wrote in to the Washington Post yesterday, Samuel, and I'm blanking on his last name, brought out a very good point. When you're looking, though, to see who now is dying, it is not your person who is has a history of infractions with the law. It's the person in their home who is that law-abiding citizen, mm. who made good choices, who's outlining their own business, right? Um, when you layer all this in and then you see that it's not just localized to one region of the country. It's the South. It's the North. Mm-hmm. It's the Midwest. It's the West Coast. It doesn't matter if you're Henry Gates trying to get in your own home or Christian Cooper. It, it really doesn't matter. Um, and the very institutions that we have supposed to be looking to for justice or maintaining law and order have the tightest grip on us. Mm. Um, there's, there's an exposure of a system, a direction we've been headed that you can't just walk away from. It's impossible. This is against the backdrop, by the way, of this type of thing happening um, for the the whole history, really, of, of black people in America, right? So, you know, beginning with slavery, um, state-sanctioned violence against uh, people of color, um, to the Jim Crow area where there were, there were lynchings, where people actually celebrated this type of thing. Um, I mean, the... I think the history of lynchings, I think a lot of white Americans are, are completely ignorant of that, um, at least many of them. And and so I think for those who might be listening and thinking, well, okay, I get it. You know, this was a bad incident and there have been some bad, you know, police uh, violence, brutality incidents recently or whatever. Um, I think they need to understand the, the bigger picture here. And maybe uh, one of you can kind of flesh that out a little bit more, um, that this... Yeah. Uh, this is against the backdrop of, 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 of racial violence for all of America's history, essentially. And I think people need to know that that's even a bigger part of this. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, 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 and I, I think that that's very important for your audience to understand that this is, these are not, in the African-American community, these are not seen as isolated incidents. Mm-hmm. These are seen as a chain of events that have taken place from 1619, the year that the first uh, slave was brought here, uh, or a group of slaves, about 20 slaves, was brought here uh, to Point Comfort, Virginia. From 1619, so 400 years last year till now, there is a, a history of, of, of violence and injustice, because I think the root of this uh, issue is an issue of justice. And I'm mm-hmm. just going to name from my lifetime, from my lifetime, um, you know, from when you have an individual, Rodney King, who is clearly brutalized by the uh, L.A. Police Department, right? And the justice system is set up to move the case to Simi Valley, which is a white area, completely different than Los Angeles, where the incident occurred, mm-hmm. so that the cops could get off. When you have then, you know, uh, 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 it's now moving it now to recent history, where Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old, is playing in Ohio in a park, you know, with a with a toy gun. He's playing with a toy gun. Police comes up, comes out the car, shooting, kills the kid. Mm. 
and the police officer gets off. Mm. When you have uh, uh, George Zimmerman, who kills a kid who's just walking back home, and nothing happens to him. And, and we can continue going down the, the list of individuals. You know, at what point, you know, you know, do people, you know, feel judges, justice? I, I think Cedric, uh, you know, kind of quoted it earlier. He, I think he might have been alluding to this. I don't know if he was alluding to this verse or not. But there's a verse that I love in Ecclesiastes 3.16, which says, I look in the place of justice, and I found no justice. And I think that's the, the, the heart, the root of this is like, the system is not working for us. You know, when there are clear, obvious examples of brutality, of, you know, murder, of, 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 of excessive violence towards uh, uh, people of color, and then there are no repercussions, lynchings. I mean, we could just, we could spend a whole episode talking about that. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you know, and there is no, matter of fact, the crime is actually lauded and applauded. You know, that's the, the context that a African American brings to this uh, conversation and the viewpoint, the vantage point that they're looking at it from. And, and, and I think there's an assumption uh, uh, on, uh, you know, white America's part that, um, you know, these are just one-off situations. Mm -hmm. The that, that opposite way that the uh, African-American community looks at it, they see it as a chain of events that have been happening throughout the history um, of this country. The reality that this is part of our life for the last four centuries is just crushing. Mm. The truth that in the most visible light it happens is just what's shocking. Okay, mm -hmm. We know that on the plantation in the Jim Crow South, even now today, there are there is institutional racism that happens. There are biases that affect education opportunities, income, um, housing opportunities, and the, and the list goes on and on. What this last situation with George Floyd helped crystallize so clearly is if your government-sponsored suppression is doing this, where else can we turn? Mm-hmm. Right. It's not just my neighbor, my employer, somebody who's driving down and putting a cross in my front yard. <clears throat> it's my government, my tax paying government that's supposed to be here, supposed to be the best in the world. That's supposed to provide justice and equity for us all. They're the source of this. And that has been problematic. And I think that is that tipping point to go back to. So when the people that are supposed to protect and serve are the ones who are inflicting the violence, what recourse do you have, right? Um, I just read on Twitter uh, yesterday or day before where somebody sarcastically said this, I don't understand why people don't seek reasonable, peaceful change through orderly protest against a system that confers impunity for murdering them or through voting in a country that systematically tries to disenfranchise them. Uh, you know, he, this person was sarcastically saying, hey, I don't, I don't get it, you know, because that's what a lot of people are saying. Come on, just just peacefully protest. Well, the reality is, and as as you brought out, Trevor, um, and, and Cedric, I think you were saying this earlier as well, is that people have been peacefully protesting for um, a long time. We've had um, football play, players taking the knee. We've had um, criticism of that. That's not the right way to protest. You're disrespecting uh, the flag. Um, we've had, you know, people doing it at you know the oscars or wherever else and it's always the wrong way to protest and um the reality is that here we are today and i want to kind of just if you know say to this next um topic and that is kind of what's going on right now you know so we have widespread unrest we have protests uh there there are um riots happening um of course people Interestingly enough, I, I find it um, strange, you know, as a, as a white American, when I hear my fellow white Americans more concerned about 
Target being looted, it seems like, than George Floyd being murdered. Um, but how would you describe, you know, I mean, what's going, what's behind these protests? I think that's what we ought to talk about, right? Um, and it, it may be more than just the racial aspect, because I think uh, you guys have been alluding a little bit to the economic aspect as well. But who wants to talk about the protests and kind of what you feel like is um, fueling these protests? I'd like to take a stab at that. Um, so, you know, obviously the protest started because of the uh, murder of George Floyd. Um, the way that the police officer was so nonchalant about that it indicates that he's not afraid of, of getting in trouble, which means mm-hmm. that his behavior had either had a blind eye turned to it or something of the sort, but it was symptomatic. Mm-hmm. We're hearing reports of what the police in Minneapolis are doing now to the peaceful protesters. I'm drawing a very thick line between the peaceful protesters and the rioters, mm-hmm. the two groups that the media is trying to conflate together in order to diminish the the complaints of the protesters. But, I mean, they're inflicting a lot of violence, right? The police are inflicting a lot of violence right now. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we kind of put this into context, it's not just the treatment of one man or the treatment of several people. It's that, as someone else was saying, this goes back in time. The reason that we have black neighborhoods that are poor is because government policies made it so mm-hmm. through redlining, which uh, which prevented blacks from moving into other communities, from um, from racial protests against blacks from moving into other neighborhoods from those uh, those people there. Um, you know, once you're um, there were two highways. I read this yesterday. There were two highways that were put through Minneapolis, which broke up the black community, which made it even poorer. Same thing happened in Chicago. Um, If you see a black neighborhood today, chances are 50 years ago, there was a red line drawn around it to keep blacks poor. So while the, while the cause that people are fighting right now is poverty, lack of education, lack of resources, it all comes down to racial prejudice in government policies and there's just no way of getting around that yeah well and you remind me of the the book the color of the law which um some of you might have read um which i recommend to our our listeners by the way um and it talks about what you're talking about the redlining how you know fha loans weren't available to to black uh home buyers and 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 the fact that the middle class in America, the greatest source of wealth for the middle class in America historically has been home ownership and transferring that wealth to their children. But black homeowners or black people who didn't own a home did not have that opportunity for century or for for decades, um, now centuries as well. But and so I mean, you're you're bringing out some. I think it it, it stemmed from racism. And I think Trevor, you were going to jump in there. It sounded like. Yeah, yeah, I, I was going to jump in, um, you know, and I, I was going to talk towards your your, your uh, question about uh, protesting, and, and, and I'm, I do think it is a legitimate question about the protesting and why the, the people are protesting in such a way. Now, let me say this first. I don't, I do not condone uh, violence. I don't believe in looting. I don't believe in graffiti. That's my position. That's, that, that's where I am. Uh, but two things, a couple things need to be noted. Number one, it has already been said by the governor that 80 percent, that's the governor of Minnesota, 80 percent of the people who have been arrested for um, vandalizing property, for, uh, for, for arson and uh, other crimes such as this, 80 percent of them are not from Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that needs to be put in as a part of the conversation that um, a lot of the people who are being destructive actually are not from the community. Um, and I'll, be, I'll push it a little further. A lot of those who are doing the destruction don't look like the community, all right? Mm. So uh, I, I want to put that out there. But now when it goes to the, the issue of uh, how to protest, you know, a lot of times we look back in history and, and, and history gets painted with a rosy picture. You know, as if those true. people who were in the civil rights movement were just, you know, always loved in how they protested. They protested in this wonderful, nonviolent manner. 
that is not how they were uh, presented mm-hmm. uh, in the media. That's not how they were viewed at that time. You know, they were called communists. They were called Nazis. They were called disturbers of the peace. You know, we forget that, you know, as they were, were walking, you know, nonviolently, water hoses were turned on them. You know, their blood was shed with dogs biting them and their blood is shed in the streets. The National Guard is called in on them. They're, they're clubbed over the head. You know, who can forget what happened to John Lewis on the mm-hmm. Edmund um, Pettus Bridge? You know, uh, so, so when you have that kind of uh, approach, you know, because these are strategies, when you have a nonviolent approach, right, mm-hmm. and you, you, you say, okay, let's do that, and then you're treated that way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What options are you left with? Right. <laughs> Right. You know, really, I mean, realistically, if we're really going to be honest, what options are you left with? You know, if you try to reason with someone and you, you, they're not uh, reasoning with you, if you, because the ultimate bottom line is you want change. And these are just mediums to be able to get change. And so if you're trying all of these things and it's not working, what is inevitably going to happen is the more extreme voices are going to have an an ear in the community. You know, I I say it this way. If you don't listen to King, you get Malcolm X. That's what inevitably happens. Mm. If you don't listen to King, you are going to get Malcolm X. And I think that's why the the protests are going in the way they are. Keeping in mind that that, that the majority of the violence and and, and the, the things that are happening are not from people in the community and are from people who are trying to make it, uh, you know, make these protests look bad. But the bottom line is, what other options do people have? Mm-hmm. You know, um, even Martin Luther King Jr. said, uh, 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 protests are the voice of the voiceless, you know? And, and, and I think that is, um, you know, what we, what we have to see going on. And I, I, let me just say this quick thing. I don't want to take up too much time, you know, because I, I want to hear from the other panelists also. But in, in Minnesota, we must keep in, con- in, in, in mind the context. It was not but just a few years ago that in, um, I believe it was in Minneapolis or St. Paul, I can't remember which city it was, but Philando Castillo, right, you know, right. he was killed. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, we must St. remember Paul. the context yeah. of that. Yeah, St. Paul, right? He, he's there and he tells the officer, hey, look, I have a gun in the backseat. I, I have a license to carry. And he's killed. Yep. And guess what happens to the officer who kills him? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. so the, in front this, of this his girlfriend and her daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we watched them die live on Facebook, you know? Right. And, and, and so we must keep in mind the context of what is going on in the city. Again, this is not an isolated incident. This is because a series of things has happened. I'm just mentioning one. There are other, you know, no named uh, crimes against the community that happened all the time, um, you know, that, that the community does know about that the community does know about. Yeah. I just wanted to just share, speaking of context and Dr. King's quote, you know, that came out of his Stanford speech in 1967. And, you know, that whole paragraph is, is powerful. And I just wanted to read it for the benefit of the, the listeners, but it's, you know, certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and injustice have not been met. It has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so, in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. Right. Wow. That that's prophetic. It is. It is. Yeah, this, this idea of what's behind it was back right there. 
Don, I think you were saying something. I was just saying that could have been written this year. Right. Be completely accurate. You know, I think for a lot of, uh, so for some folks they're, they're looking at this and, and again, they've had their heads in the sand. Um, and, and they're like, well, you know, okay, so we're aware of this suddenly, you know, they, they haven't seen a problem, but they're, uh, I think we have to, and, and what you've all been talking about to me is basically saying this has been a festering, uh, wound, uh, that's never healed. It's been the, the source of the racial issues in our country have never really been addressed. Um, as one of my favorite um, authors, um, speakers, um, and attorneys, Brian Stevenson, um, you might know him. In fact, the, the movie Just Mercy, which uh, came out uh, earlier this year, was about um, one of his cases. Uh, he runs the Equal Justice Initiative there in Alabama. Uh, he says it this way. He says, you know, in, in South Africa, they had the uh, truth and reconciliation, you know, process that helped to bring that country to a place where it um, ended much of the racial violence there. But he's like, in America, we've never had the truth part. We're trying to reconcile, but we're not really talking about the truth of what's happened to black people uh, in our country over the last you know, centuries. And I think that's true. I think a lot of white Americans are, are through their own lack of educating themselves, they're ignorant of what black people are suffering in America. And so how are we going to have reconciliation? How are we going to have justice if we don't, or if we don't um, even talk about um, what the experience of the African American community is and what it has been? Um, and I want to just, I want, let's go to the next, I, I, go ahead. I'd say it was it, it maybe even worse than, than that, in that it's the exact opposite of what was happening in um, South Africa. Mm, it's mm-hmm. not that we have hidden the past, it's that we have rewritten the past. We have what? Say it again. For this, we have, we have rewritten the past. Ah, yes. We have made lies about what we did in the past. That's and true. And those lies are still prevalent. It's still amazing how many Americans, for instance, um, think that the Civil War was not fought over slavery. Yeah, um, I think it was states' rights. Right. Uh, you know, slavery was not so bad. It was states' rights. Well, which was the one state right that they were fighting over slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, that education is is very key, very important. Thanks for listening to Do Justice. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate the Do Justice podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also connect with us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at DoJusticeNow. Now.